This, uh, I must say, I've enjoyed this series going through Mark's gospel. I, ho- I hope you have. Uh, as we've gone through Mark, Mark has painted uh, a picture of Jesus as someone full of compassion, someone who reaches out to the vulnerable society and the outcast, the sick. And last week, we read about the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus, it says, Mark says, He looked on the crowd and had compassion on them. They were because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Yet regularly, even up to this point in Mark, we've come across the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they provoke from Jesus a very different response. And on this occasion, He confronts them and even charges them with hypocrisy. The teachers of the law, the scribes, had come down from Jerusalem. You can imagine, I sort of picture this uh, fairly somber, heavyweight mob coming down, uh, theological heavyweights. And the Pharisees, they and the Pharisees observed that Jesus' disciples were not following all their their traditions, and they demanded an explanation. Uh, clearly, at least some of Mark's uh, audience were not Jews, uh, so, because Mark gives us a little bit of detail about the sort of regulation the tradition demanded, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles, that, those two or three verses in brackets he's explaining what would have been familiar to Jews. So why does this provoke such a strong reaction and an accusation of hypocrisy Uh, both from Jesus. After all, there were very important matters that the Pharisees and Jesus would have agreed on. They had a consuming desire that the people of God be holy. And they loved the Torah. They loved the law of God. And they assumed that the way to holiness was to be found in the Torah. Now, what is more, in the face of relentless pressure over the previous 150 to 200 years or so, it was the Pharisees who took the lead in preserving and reinforcing Jewish identity. So they would seem in so many ways to be natural allies of Jesus. So why do they provoke such an uncharacteristic response from Jesus? Well, there are two issues. Perhaps it was at least in part how they defined holiness. They advocated strict adherence to God's law, but to keep the separation, to keep their identity intact, they accumulated over the years endless rules which reinforced their separation, their distinctiveness and it became merely external and not internal. I think it's worth at this point, and and this point in Mark, just setting a little bit of the Old Testament background to that. So I hope you'll bear with me on this. I'm digressing a bit, but I hope that it's helpful and it seems the right point in Mark in which to sort of delve into this a little bit. When God gave Moses the law, He also instructed Moses on the mountain what He was to say to the people 
when he went back down with the law, but before they would, Moses would pass on the law, there were a few comments that he was told to make. First of all, that it was I, Yahweh, who rescued you from Egypt. I delivered you. You are here, you are enjoying your freedom entirely because of my miraculous intervention. That's how he starts. But then he goes on. I'm going to give you the law, and you are to become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. You are to become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. They were to be different, which essentially is what the word holy means. They were to be different, but in what way? What does it mean to be holy, either for the Israelites in the desert or for us here in Guildford? We often think of holiness in the Old Testament as being just about religious rituals and food laws. And if you ever, if, I don't know how you, you do your Bible reading, but if you follow one of these uh, um, patterns of reading through the Bible where you're taken at one point into Leviticus, uh, you'll probably get quite bogged down in it and be tempted to give up. Now, many would honestly say they've done that. They've gone into Leviticus and say, well, I've had enough of this. Let's go somewhere else. I would urge you before you do so, to have a look at chapter, nine of, chapter 19 of Leviticus. The chapter starts with God saying to His people, be holy, be different, because I am holy. That's how He starts. And the chapter has, in a way, a summary of what it means to be holy, what it means to be like God as He's holy. And one of the remarkable things about the chapter that explains what holiness looks like is that it's full of incredibly practical demands, such as laws concerning generosity to the poor, fair treatment for employees, the integrity of the judicial process, equality before the law for ethnic minorities, it's all there. Safety precautions to prevent endangering life, as well as the laws, of course, of pur purity and the ritual and the food laws and so on. Interspersed with all that are these very, very practical issues. So when God says to His people, "He is ho be holy because I am holy, the meaning is clear. Obey these laws because they model the character of God. Do this because that's the sort of God that I am. A number of scholars see strong connections between Jesus' ministry and the extent to which he drew on this one chapter from Leviticus. And of course, it's also important to note that to obey these laws was for their own good. This was not, this is really important, this was not some arbitrary duty placed on God's people to please some distant God with some arbitrary set of rules. Rather, they would guide God's people to personal fulfillment, satisfaction, true freedom, social harmony, and prosperity. 
So the people of God were to be holy, and holy turns out to be incredibly practical, and it is a reflection of what God is like. So the people were to be holy, but they were also to be a kingdom of priests. As the people, they would represent God to the nations, which is what a priest does in part meaning that the nations around would look on and they would see what God is like as the people obeyed these laws that God gave them. So, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says, See, I have taught you these decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these laws and say, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous laws as this body of law that I'm setting before you today? However, Israel, of course, could only perform that priestly duty insofar as they were holy, they were different, they were distinctive and followed God's law. So the laws on ritual purity that we read, in, in, particularly in Leviticus, are to be understood in the context of maintaining the distinctiveness of being different, a holiness which is primarily on the ethical quality of their lives, not just on some religious practice and tradition. However, and this is important, being different did not mean being exclusive, since they were commissioned by God to be a blessing to the nations. So, although you would have imagined the Pharisees, therefore, as gods of Jesus' natural allies, clearly they had a very warped view of what it meant to be holy. But here in our passage, Jesus is also accusing them of hypocrisy, and He quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. The message of Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah was deeply shocking because they told the people explicitly that Yahweh hated and despised their worship and was fed up and sickened. Quite, this, is, this is accurate uh, quotes from their uh, prophecies that he was God was fed up and sickened by the very sacrifices that the people thought that he wanted. Amos declares this message of God. I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. What language? So there's something radically shocking yet revealing 
about a God who declares that he hates and despises religious worship when he's addressing a people who were diligently following the festivals, the sacrifices, and the priesthood that the law demanded. The prophets spoke of a God who will not be worshipped and cannot be known apart from commitment to the righteousness, the justiceness, faithfulness, and love, which are his own character and on which the law is based. It's a sobering reminder, isn't it, that it's possible to have an entirely orthodox worship that can be repulsive to God. It's sobering and challenging and quite shocking. It can be repulsive to God if it is carried out in the absence of faithfulness, love, righteousness, and justice. And so Jesus turns that same righteous anger on these people whose practices done in the name of the law were contradicting the very principles of the law. And he gives them then a very specific example. God's law speaks of the responsibility that children have to their parents, as as we've heard in the passage. We're familiar, honor your father and mother. But the Pharisees, by declaring that their property was owned by God, sounds quite holy and right thing to do, but in doing so, they freed themselves from any financial obligations to their parents, rather like a clever tax dodge. And then Jesus says in verse 13, and you do many things like that. That's just an example. There are many more. I came across some time ago uh, an illustration of what the Pharisees got wrong that I find find very helpful, and you, you might as well. Imagine, if you will, you move to a house that's got a magnificent view. You're looking across from the house, across this lake, and across to mountains. It's just stunning. And the house you've got in your living room, a huge uh, window through which you can just stand or sit and enjoy this view, and you do that as often as possible because the view is just magnificent. And of course, the window being there enables you to do that in all weathers, so even in the winter you can just sit and just take in this magnificent view. One day, the bird uh, flying past leaves its deposit on the window. So you rush to the kitchen and you get uh, a cloth and basin and some cleaning chemicals and you get outside and give the window a good wash. And a few days later, there's a heavy rainstorm and after the storm, the window is quite streaked. And I thought, oh dear. And you get the basin and the water out again and a stepladder and get out there and thoroughly wash the window. And then a day or two later, you have a family visit with young children, and there's hand marks all over the window. So again, out comes the basin and the cloth and the chemicals. And so it goes on. 
and you accumulate, uh, and, you know, a good stepladder and an extra basin and a whole load of uh, cloths and lots of optional different chemicals to, with which to clean the window, and you fail to notice that as time goes on, you've actually stopped enjoying the view. The, the window itself and the cleaning of that window has become a complete obsession. So you're cleaning the window every day, but you never actually stop and look through the window and see, what's, see what the view is like. When you've reached that point, you've become a Pharisee. They were so obsessed with the window, nothing wrong with the window, but they were so obsessed with it that they had long forgotten what the purpose of the window was, and that is to look through it and enjoy the view. The purpose of the law was to be holy as God is holy. Laws which will enable a people whom God has redeemed to enjoy their freedom and so that the nations around will look on and be blessed. That was its purpose. But they were so obsessed with the window, they missed the view. Verse 14, Jesus then turns his attention to the crowd and addresses them. And he told them a short parable. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, some listeners must have been quite shocked, uh, wondering what on earth Jesus meant. But those with ears to hear knew exactly what he was referring to and what he then went on to explain to his disciples in private. The holiness which the Pharisees demanded was one of scrupulous attention to the highly complex purity laws which had been developed and which at this stage were part of their oral tradition and later would become written and codified. Their window, to stick with my picture, was the ritual food <coughs> excuse me, and purity laws. Holiness, as they defined it, was characterized by exclusion. Who were on the inside? Who were following diligently these laws? Those excluded were Jews who didn't uh, live up to their expectation or Gentile nations in general, and the Romans in particular. Jesus cuts right through it to the fundamental issue at stake, the human heart. But it was all for them about the regulations. As we've reminded ourselves, holiness always was intended to be a grateful response to God's grace by loving God and loving our neighbor. The stumbling block is what we do and is a reflection of what is happening within. Jesus said in our reading, for it is from within, from a person's heart, that evil intentions come. And the prognosis is not good because there is a natural tendency toward evil thoughts, which of course become evil actions. 
Perhaps Jeremiah was well aware of that problem when he looked forward to a new covenant when God's law would be written on our hearts. At this point in Mark, we're left with Jesus highlighting a problem of the human heart, which at that point, there isn't the solution given. But subsequently, Jesus' death on the cross, His resurrection, and the giving of His Spirit would deal not only with our sin, but that we would be indwelt by the Spirit of God who would help us in our weakness, help us to transform our heart. At the risk of laboring that picture of the window too much, let me return to it for a moment. For the Pharisees, the window was the scrupulous attention to the law and the traditions that they built up around it. Spent their lives attending to it, cleaning the window. And as a consequence, as we've noted, they stopped observing and enjoying the view. They forgot that although the window was important, it served a purpose to enable those in the house to enjoy this majestic view of knowing God and walking in His ways. It's very easy, isn't it, to obsess over the window. I was not brought up in the Church of England, and so many of its traditions and liturgies have a freshness to me and they enable me to enjoy the view. They enable me to enter into worship in a fresh and real way. In themselves, they are good and they are helpful. The danger exists that I could so obsess over strict adherence to the church to such an extent that I miss the view. The danger exists, and I forget that the purpose of the traditions, the purpose of the liturgies, is to enable me to serve and worship the living God. Likewise, sound doctrine is important, and those who seek to maintain sound doctrine in the church have an important role. But the scrutiny of every statement of the church and its leaders to determine if there is a crack appearing in their theology can become an obsession in itself. Doctrinal orthodoxy is a window that gives us a right understanding of God, yet it can become an end in itself. I was reminded very many years ago that doctrinal orthodoxy is not part of the fruit of the Spirit. Likewise, the gifts of the Spirit, given to our, for our mutual benefit, yet misuse as they were in Corinth, can actually prevent us from enjoying the purpose for which they're given. So church, these are just examples, church tradition, doctrinal orthodoxy, and even the gifts of the Spirit, all important. All exist in order to help us know God and to walk in His ways. 
to worship him in truth. But only insofar as we look beyond them to the purpose for which they're given. But let's end by just gazing through the window to the view. We're greatly blessed. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to deal with our sin, to deal with our greatest problem, the human heart. He's given us his word. He's given us direction as to how to live in a way that will both please him and be for our own good. So along with David in the Psalms, we delight in that. We take joy in it. And he's given us his spirit to transform us by the renewing of our mind such that what comes out, going back to Jesus' statement about the heart, so that what comes out is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The view is spectacular. We worship a God who has done so much. So let's not be distracted by the window, which in itself may be very good. Shall we just pause and, and pray for a moment? The writer to the Hebrews exhorts us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set out before him endured the cross. God, we thank you for your word and help us to take from it what you would have us know and absorb today. Forgive us when we get it wrong. Forgive us when we fall into the trap that the Pharisees did. But thank you for your liberating gospel. And so we bring ourselves to you in Jesus' name.